Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives where you can listen to every episode we've ever done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is May 19th, 2014, and my guest is William Easterly of New York University. His latest book is The Tyranny of Experts, Economists, Dictators, and the Forgotten Rights of the Poor. And that book is the subject of today's conversation. Bill, welcome back to Econ Talk. Thanks, Russ. Good to be here. Uh, what do you mean by the tyranny of experts? Well, it's an unintentional tyranny that results when experts think that poverty is a purely technical solution and they can ignore whether the rights of the poor are respected or not. So in practice, they accept the status quo in which the rights of the poor are not respected. And what the experts wind up doing is sort of being in charge in in an unintentional collusion with the the autocrats that are the status quo in the poor countries that they are operating. It's the experts and the autocrats that are running development from the top down, and that is neither morally desirable nor does it work. Now, you talk about the rights of the poor uh, not being respected by by experts. Uh, Isn't it more than that? Isn't it the behavior of the poor sometimes, just respect generally, that's missing? Yeah, there is a more fundamental paternalism and condescension towards the poor. This uh, inability to believe that the poor, the poor people, are really capable of developing themselves. And so, development is thought of something uh, that we, the experts, have to do to and for them, because we really don't believe they can do it themselves. But it's this kind of double standard in that we. When we think about our own history of how we developed, we don't think about it that way. We think we developed ourselves. We think we, uh, as free people, were able to either be problem solvers ourselves or motivate other problem solvers, political and economic, to solve our needs. But we don't think about poverty and our development in poor countries that way. We think of it as this paternalistic enterprise that we, the experts, are doing for them. Isn't the risk of that approach, which I happen to share, as listeners know, that it um, it dissolves us, uh, or it gets rid of our moral responsibility or anything we might do to actually help? We just say, well, you know, they have to develop themselves up to them, and we and therefore we can leave them alone. But that isn't your uh, conclusion, is it? No, not at all. And I think the the fear of that conclusion has kind of distorted the whole development debate. Precisely in the direction of the, of the overemphasis of experts and technical solutions and what we in the West, we rich people can do. Uh, it's like the fear of, of sort of our indifference has driven us way too far in the other direction in which we have this frankly, um, sort of self, self-centered, arrogant, conceited view of ourselves as being the key to other people's development. And that's, uh, that's just as bad uh, an evil as the the opposite extreme of the evil of indifference and doing nothing. Now your book has a quite a bit of history of the idea of development. You go back uh, farther 
further than I was aware of in that history. One of the issues you talk about is the the intellectual differences between Gunnar Myrdal and and Hayek. Uh, Many of our listeners may not know Gunnar Myrdal. Talk about who he was and uh, the debate between Myrdal and Hayek that never happened. Yeah, so um, Myrdal uh, was one of the early development economists. His writing started appearing in the 1950s as the field of development economics was emerging. And there's a sort of natural pairing with Hayek because he and Hayek got the Nobel Prize in the same year, in uh, 1974. And so there was this kind of juxtaposition of here are these two Nobel laureates who had actually wound up writing about pretty much the same issues, about the big picture issues of how societies do or do not successfully develop. But they had never engaged with each other uh, because there was this sort of strange thing that happened that um, that Myrdal was very much a part of. That development economics sort of seceded from the rest of the economics profession and had this kind of new view of economics. So it was very planning-oriented, very uh, kind of top-down, nation-centric idea of how development happens, which was totally alien to the way development had had been happening up to then at that moment in the 50s. Uh, but those were the, the ideas that were embraced by uh, this sort of unanimous body of development economists were, who only achieved uh, unanimity by <laughs> declaring anyone who didn't agree with them not to be a development economist. So so uh, Myrdal was a kind of founding member of this large group, and they became kind of the the really only voices in the room on development for forever after. And Hayek was not considered at all a development economist. His ideas were not considered at all relevant to uh to development. Of course Hayek had a you know brilliant exposition of how free societies develop, but that was simply considered not relevant to poor societies by the development economists. Why do you think that was? Well besides the fact that you know everybody likes to keep their club yeah, I think, um, you know, I think it's, it had, uh, definitely had something to do with, um, a lot of condescension and paternalism towards poor people that we've already talked about, which is, um, which is easier to understand if you, um, like you said, the book goes back much farther than usual in tracing the ideas of what we could call kind of technocratic development, development done by experts from the top down. And that goes all the way back into uh, pre-revolutionary China in the 20s and 30s when the Rockefeller Foundation was starting to think about promoting development in China. And then it went into uh, British colonial Africa and was really formulated to uh, a degree of sophistication that's very similar to what exists today already in the late 1930s in British colonial Africa with even some of the same technical solutions talked about then as they're talked about now like you know a random example would be um a british colonial report in 1938 said you know what the way to prevent malaria is spray a chemical called pyrethrum on the the walls of the the houses they kill some mosquitoes a u.n report 70 years later uh around 2005 said you know the way to kill malaria kill off malaria spray pyrethrum on the walls of the houses (laughs) and so you know there's 
this emergence of technocratic development had already happened during colonial times. And I think that's kind of an important clue because it, it kind of shows that technocratic development emerged at a time when nobody could even conceive of poor people having equal rights to, to rich white people and could not conceive of poor people being able to help themselves. So this sort of colonialist mentality kind of was, you know, extreme and an overtly racist mentality was the was when the formative years of technocratic development were. I don't think that automatically discredits any technocratic development idea. That's not fair. But it does give some insight into the long history of a history of sort of paternalism in uh, the way we think about development. And a, and a kind of double standard in which we can't conceive of what happened in uh, rich countries and their successful development as being applicable to the rest of the world and how they develop. Yeah, I just want to put in a plug for Adam Smith uh, while you're on this subject because when you read The Wealth of Nations or The Theory of Moral Sentiments, one of the things you're struck by it's is the dog that doesn't bark. It's that there's very, very little condescension toward uh, poor people or yeah. Um, yeah. or the Irish, say, which of, of which a lot of uh, yeah. elites looked down on uh, at the time. He, he gives everybody the respect uh, to make their own decisions with the information that they have available to them. And yeah. it's easy to forget how radical that was in 1759 or 1776. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he was very much the progressive revolutionary at that point. And I think economists um, have carried on that role. The, the liberal economists that followed Smith have carried on that role for many years. John Stuart Mill is another one, you know, advocating very radical ideas about personal liberty, you know, the freedom to do whatever you want as long as you don't harm anyone else. And um, what, when I was tracing the, the history of technocratic development in, in China and Africa, as I just talked about, alongside them were the, the heirs to Adam Smith and John Stuart Mill, who were arguing for very liberal development ideas, a very liberal approach to development that, that did stress the rights of the individual and the ability of the individual to, to be very entrepreneurial and, and problem-solving. And these there's this long list of... Uh, of uh, forgotten economists that I that I will join someday soon. <laughs> forgotten liberal development economists who uh, it's a very honorable uh, club, even though it's small and and not yes. noticed uh, much. Yes, so you know there was a a guy named John Conliffe, totally forgotten, arguing the case for kind of liberal development in pre-revolutionary China, opposed by Rockefeller Foundation and the U.S. State Department who wanted to support the, the dictator Chiang Kai-shek and a very top-down approach, planned approach to development. And then in, you know, in colonial Africa, there was a South African economist named Herbert Frankel who had argued all his life for the political and economic rights of Africans. And he was opposed by the, the whole development establishment uh, on, in, in Africa. So, you know, and there's several more. There was a chi- even a a student of Hayek, uh, who was uh, a Chinese economist who had studied at LSE under Hayek, who had argued very much for the liberal view of Chinese development in, in China during the, the war between kind of liberal and authoritarian development that was conclusively won by authoritarian development in, in China, even before the communists came along. Uh, and he was, his name was Yuan Li Wu. He was completely forgotten, completely erased from history. So there, there's, 
you know, all these voices, all these attempts to kind of offer this kind of free liberal alternative as part of, you know, the great battle of ideologies of the 20th century, that this was offered to, to the rest of the world, to what was called the third world. Um, but tragically, the, uh, the voices from the West who were, who were ever advocating the authoritarian alternative really drowned out the, uh, the liberal economists. Well, I appreciate you bringing their names back up. Uh, maybe someone will be kind enough to do that for you in 70 or 100 years, uh, or, or even <laughs> yeah. me. Um, yes. Yes. Uh, now, you suggest that collectivist ideology uh, can affect values and have a persistent effect over time and its effect on growth. And I'm a little bit skeptical right. of that. I'd, I'd like to think it's true, but I, I wonder how you might possibly know. So how, what's your make your case for that argument? Well, I mean, I'm just drawing on um, a lot of the recent academic literature, which has really, there's been a kind of exploding literature on values and culture and economics that looks at very, very long run uh, trends and data. And the, the basic idea that emerges from that literature that's relevant to this discussion is that there's this kind of um, vicious circle between a history of autocracy and collectivist values. Uh, and the, uh, the collectivist values are those in which there's a, you sort of make a big distinction between insiders and outsiders that you, um, you know, you see nothing wrong at all with doing horrible things to outsiders or cheating outsiders, but you will, you will behave well with, within regard to your own kin or ethnic group. And that's, uh, so that it's uh, a complete lack of trust and respect for outsiders or strangers, whereas uh, the individualist values, you have much greater trust and respect for for uh, strangers, which then opens the door to kind of the equal, um, the respect for every individual to do whatever they want, which is kind of the basis of an individualist liberal society. So, you know, the vicious cycle happens because if you are already in a... Um, a collectivist society, um, and again, another, another big aspect of this is that you, in the collectivist, in the collectivist values, you conform and you punish any dissenters who, who, you know, deviate in either norms or behavior, think, in either thinking or behavior from the norms. And you now that's the kind of, uh, behavior that parents will want to teach to their children in an authoritarian society where there's a, a brutal autocrat who will put any dissidents in jail, where um, the ethnic and clan elders will be in collusion with the autocrat to punish dissent from their own hierarchical uh, rule. And, you know, the only value that everyone stresses is just obedience to to the hierarchy of sort of uh, father, ethnic group, uh, you know, dictator at the top. And that's the kind of behavior that parents teach to their children because if, if children don't follow that behavior, they're going to be, you know, have a horrible life living in jail or socially ostracized or just, uh, you know, having to flee the country or whatever. So that's, that's why autocracy and collectivist values tend to feed on each other. But should that, does that persist over time? Yeah, the evidence is that that persists for a very long time. And, um, some of the European culture researchers have shown this by comparing different parts of Europe with each other. I mean, one of the the most famous is sort of North versus Southern Italy. Southern Italy had centuries of autocracy. Uh, Northern Italy was where sort of free 
some measure of limited measure of political freedom sort of emerged uh, among the earliest of any places in Europe and the city states of northern Italy. And that's still correlated today with values that you can measure, like how much you trust and respect strangers. I wonder if causation clearly runs in that one direction, though. Well, I think it's that. I think the point is that it does run in both directions. That it's um, and again, because there's either this vicious circle in which um, a history of autocracy perpetuates kind of collectivist values, which then make more possible. You know, you're more likely to have an authoritarian system if you have collectivist values. And then the, if you can get out of that vicious circle, then you have a virtuous circle that happened in northern Italy and then in the Netherlands and then in the UK and then the US, where you get um, sort of trust and respect and tolerance for others, making possible a degree of uh, individual freedom in which individuals can do what they want. And that uh, forms the basis for a, a free society with individual rights. You talk a lot about uh, some very ugly examples uh, from the early and mid-20th century where aid advocates um, had some, as you mentioned earlier, some pretty ugly attitudes toward the people they were allegedly trying to help. Uh, there's some classic, what what we call here, bootlegger and Baptist examples where a lot of times what looked like helpful aid was really pushing a different agenda, say of foreign policy or goals. But let's talk about today's world where the the top-down experts are, are advocating various things. And I want to talk about, in particular, somebody like Bill Gates, who, whose approach to development is you know, very data-oriented, wants to have goals. And uh, you're, not, you're not a big fan of that, so why not? Yeah, well, I mean, Bill Gates is kind of the, the classic technocrat example. He really thinks of – it seems like he can only think in poverty in terms of uh, really specific – technical problems that need to be solved by really specific technical fixes. Uh, you know, like malaria is, you know, indoor spraying plus bed nets plus uh, malaria medications if you do get malaria. Is that wrong? And, that seems like uh, – well, those all uh, seem like know, good things. They are good things. And, of course, they are the – this is the technical solution of malaria. That's correct. Uh, so it's not um, – it's not – the point is not challenging – that these are the technical solutions. It's taking a deeper view of, you know, asking questions like, well, if these technical fixes are are so easy, why didn't they happen already? Um, you know, why why are the you know the technical knowledge has been there for decades? As I I gave you the example of uh, spraying the walls with pyrethrum having been there for seventy years, and that's. Uh, through many of these technical fixes. And so you have to ask, why Why didn't the technical solutions ever stick when they were tried? And uh, and that makes you worry that they won't stick again today if you put only your focus on technical fixes and don't, don't worry about why, what is the broader system in which they are or are not sticking permanently. And I think the the fundamental reason is kind of really, uh, you know, Econ 101 and Political Science 101, that you need sort of motivated actors on the ground who, who do have the motivation to keep supplying the technical fixes. That the, the absence of technical fixes is a symptom and not the cause of poverty. It's a symptom of poverty. And the fundamental cause 
is a lack of rights for people. That's, so uh, well, let's let's talk about malaria for a minute. Um, sure. Jeff Sachs was on this program uh, a little while back, and uh, he actually uh, criticized you personally for opposing, so he claimed, uh, the bed net initiatives in Africa to fight malaria. Uh, quoting one of your earlier books uh, where you expressed some skepticism as you're expressing it now. So I want to make sure you have a chance to defend yourself. And in particular, won't the people on the ground, don't they want the bed nets? Don't they want their houses sprayed? Why is it – where's the Econ 101 in the bed net problem that that in terms of incentives uh, or knowledge that makes a top-down solution problematic? Right. So, um, so first of all, I mean, I think the people like Jeff Sachs or Bill Gates, they, they like to characterize me or other skeptics of their ideas as being, uh, you know, like openly in favor of malaria. <laughs> so I want to make that. That's correct. Okay. Uh, and we'll talk but about I that maybe in a minute. But yeah, that is the implication. Yeah, wanna, you want to go on the record you're against I, it? You want to? I want to, I want to forcefully go on the record that I'm opposed to malaria. I'm opposed to people dying from malaria. I, have just as much empathy and and care caring about this tragedy tragedy as as they do. It's more about wanting to really find out what works and where what works is not limited to what works for five minutes, but what will work permanently to fix the problem. And there, so you're asking, what is the Econ 101? Well, so let's uh, let's be very clear about this. So the the solution to malaria involves either a private good or a public good, uh, and probably some combination of both. So, you know, we, Econ 101 tells us very well how to, uh, motivate suppliers, private goods. There's, uh, you know, the market does that. And that's profit. in the long run where we, where we should profit. Um, you know, where there are private good solutions to poor people's problems, poor people are willing to, are willing and able to uh, to pay for for these goods, and um, if we think that there's some poor people that are so poor that they're being excluded, then probably the best solution would be to subsidize their their incomes rather than to directly have the aid experts take over the provision of the private goods. And then I I certainly agree that it's not all about markets. It's not all about uh, you know there there is a role for public goods. There is a role for the state. And I think this is where the, the most fundamental disagreement comes with the, the technocrats is how do you properly motivate the state to supply the public good? Suppose we did decide that, um, there's something, there's major externalities to malaria eradication campaigns that it's mainly a public good. Let's just take that as a possible hypothesis, even then. And it's, it's one I'm, I'd be willing to, very willing to consider. But, uh, we still have the problem of motivating the state to provide this public good of a malaria eradication campaign. How, how do states get motivated? They get motivated when poor people have political rights to hold them accountable, to punish them for failure and reward them for success. Uh, you know, we do that in uh, our own societies by, uh, you know, we, we gave a horrible amount of grief to one poor New Jersey governor who just created a traffic jam on a bridge. You know, that's a, that's a way in which we, uh, as we manifest political rights in action that we keep, um, 
That we particular keep, we keep politicians from doing bad things to us, and we try to have them divert their energies to doing good things to us by supplying public goods. Um, so you know, de- democracy, uh, the freedom of speech, freedom to protest, uh, freedom to dissent, freedom of thought—all of these are, are really vital ingredients in making sure that the if it is a public good that is the answer, that the state will be motivated to not do bad things and instead do very good things to make these technical fixes stick. You know, it's like um, Amartya Sen said very famously uh, a while ago that democracies don't have famines. And that was, you know, one of the big things for which he got the Nobel Prize. And that's been, you know, debated up and down, but I think it's fundamentally correct that there's something about democracy and political, not not just, we'll talk more about what democracy means. I'm talking about political rights in general, the ability to protest and freedom of speech that create a sort of early warning system, which really motivates states to do the, the technical fixes that prevent famine or to prevent malaria. And those uh, incentives are, are really, really absent in authoritarian regimes that rule through repression and terror and coercion. But they have no motivation to do good things for the public to make the technical fixes for malaria or famine stick because their fundamental incentive is simply to just stay in power by, by more coercion and repression. That's the fundamental point here really at stake uh, that really the technocrats do not get. States are not benevolent on their own. They're only benevolent when we, the citizens, have the political rights to force them to be benevolent. That is the key point. But stick with bed nets for a second. Uh, are you opposed to the idea of a centralized government, democratic or autocratic, uh, giving away bed nets as a way to fight malaria? Um, yeah, I'm very willing to consider that as part of the um, the menu that would fight malaria. Um, you could argue that malaria has some does have because it's uh, contagious in, the, in an indirect sense in that, um, you know, the mosquitoes are the vector that spread malaria from from some people to other people. So any anytime you have an element of contagion, there is an externality that, that calls for some public intervention. And so maybe kind of um, mass, uh, mass distribution of bed nets could be justified to deal with that Free distribution of bed nets could be justified to deal with that externality. Um, but I think the, that Sachs and Gates really underestimate the, the way the market can very much contribute to these solutions. I mean, and actually has already in a major way eliminated, you know, contributed to major health improvements and major improvements in other areas. I mean, take antibiotics or soap as, as examples that have you know, these are purely, uh, these are goods that are usually distributed through, um, very often distributed through, through markets in poor countries and that are bought, um, by, by poor people in pretty much unregulated markets and have made, you know, major, major contributions to the progress on child mortality that we've, we've witnessed, uh, you know, thankfully in, in the past few decades. You talk about a reduction in child mortality in Ethiopia as being an example of some of the challenges of using uh, data-driven solutions. Um, again, it's a little challenging to come out against data-driven solutions since what's the alternative? 
gut instinct, uh, intuition, uh, your 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 mood this morning. So it, it's a little bit bold to suggest that data driven stuff is not a good idea. Uh, so what's wrong with celebrating the fall in child mortality in Ethiopia, which seemed to be on the surface to be quite sizable? Yeah, well, I'm not. Um I'm not criticizing the reliance on um, data to get some sense of what is working and what is not. Uh, what I'm criticizing is the the, u- the use of very short-run improvements to render vi- verdicts in a very – it's actually a very sloppy, non-empirical way um, in which any sort of short-run improvement observed in child mortality by Bill Gates, he, uh, he attributes right away to – Mela Sanawi, the, the dictator of Ethiopia that was in power at the time, is ignoring a lot of direct evidence that Mela Sanawi was not a benevolent dictator. We can talk about that more later. Um, but, you know, part of it's, it's ironic that he, in his uh, Wall Street Journal article that came out in 2012, he was kind of celebrating kind of the precision of measurement of data-driven solutions as this ma- magical way in which the solution could be engineered and technocratically fine-tuned to really make it work because the the national child mortality data that he was talking about are just notoriously awful and unreliable and um you can you can show that by looking just at alternative estimates of the same number of child mortality in Ethiopia in which you can get anything from a kind of major increase on track to meet the millennium development goals of uh of a huge reduction in child mortality. Uh, and some numbers could actually even imply an increase in child mortality in Ethiopia. That's how imprecise the alternative sources of numbers are. Now, the solution to that is not to give up on data altogether. There's a much better solution, which is simply to rely much more on long-run trends and long-run evidence and not rely on short-run evidence um, because the short-run evidence is just way too noisy to know what's really going on or what's really working or not. And that's just directly contradictory to Bill Gates' fantasy that you could year by year know what's really going on to fine-tune your your engineering solution from the top down. Well, when you're steering the car, you, you do want to know the GPS to be very accurate. You, you want to get a yes. measurement every second. So the more yes. often, the better. <laughs> well, the more often, the, the more often you're going to be very badly wrong. <laughs> Um, because the, the short run data are just too unreliable. So, you know, what, what those data are useful for are really to give you more of a much more long run verdict, which, which, um, system is better, a system based on individual rights or a system based on, uh, technocrats and dictators. And there, I think the long run evidence is very conclusive. The, uh, the gigantic reductions in child mortality have come mainly in free societies. And not not in uh, not in autocratic societies. They came much earlier and much bigger in free societies than they came in autocratic societies. That's what I think the data is telling you. And so the data is really weighing in on this big debate that Bill Gates is completely ignoring and avoiding about uh, is the autocrat of Ethiopia actually the part of you know, a big part of the solution to development in Ethiopia, or is he actually part of the problem? And I I think the big long-run picture says he's actually part of the problem, not the solution. Well, we had an episode with Morton Jervin on um, the unreliability of 
data often yeah, um, yeah, he has in, in the long run and the short run. So, you know, one of my concerns is that in many of these um, poor countries, data collection is not so great in the United States sometimes. So, you know, it's a wealthy country that has yeah, lots of resources. No, but, it's, uh, no, but it, it's not both the long run and the short run. that You, you can't equate the two because what the great, the great saving value of the long run is that the – no matter how big the measurement error is, and it is very big, but it is, if it's, if it's just unbiased and just sort of fluctuating up and down, even by a large amount, over the long run, that tends to average out. And so you, you do get, tend to get a more accurate measure, even with measurement error, when you go to longer and longer run data. And that's one thing this book really insists on repeatedly is that to, to really get the right evidence that we need for, you know, what's, what's working in development and what's not, you really need to go very long run and, and not, not overreact to kind of short run episodes of improvements in either development or child mortality or whatever. That, those are just really not reliable, but the long run is reliable. Well, let's talk about an issue that we discussed the last time you were on Econ Talk, which is, uh, which you've, we're kind of talking about through much of this conversation, but I want to talk about it explicitly with respect to China. Uh, a lot of people, I think, uh, misinterpret the data, and, and by people, I mean everyday people. Uh, they say, well, look, China is the greatest success story of the last 25 years in, in the world. China's doing great. Uh, China is an autocracy. It's not a democracy. So autocracy is good for growth, that you're claiming it's not. So... Uh, meet that head on and uh, and talk about it. Yeah. Well, you know, one reason uh, China could have the potential for such rapid growth is it was such a disaster at the, at the starting point. And so, you know, when you start from a disastrously low point, which itself had, I think, the the long run evidence from other places would suggest that China's very, very low starting point had a lot to do with its long history of uh, unbroken authoritarian rule and violence and warlords and foreign occupation. And uh, and I think a much better explanation for the rapid Chinese growth is simply that you you started from this kind of brutal totalitarian authoritarian starting point of uh, you had this psycho named Mao in power who was you know, just engaged in savage repression of citizens' everyday liberties and during the Cultural Revolution and the Great Leap Forward, which created the Great Famine. And from that low point, you have uh, actually a positive change in both economic and political freedom, even even political freedom, even though it's still terrible, terribly absent today in China. It is it is better than it was under Mao. There is much more scope for China. Chinese citizens to make their own individual choices. Uh, the personal freedoms are much greater than they were under Mao. And it's ob- very obvious that economic freedom is, is far greater than it was under Mao. And I think it's that change in freedom and, or put it negatively, the decrease in autocracy is what explains China's rapid, rapid growth. And it's, so it's, it's, it's really sort of a mismatch to attribute what is a change um, you know, the rapid growth rate of China to a, a level thing, which is autocracy. The, the correct match would be the, the change in autocracy and the change in development. And that is a correlation that supports the, the freedom side because you have a positive change in freedom and you have a very positive change in development. 
in the form of rapid economic growth. But they still have a very, very top-down society. They have leaders who are building cities everywhere, building infrastructure yeah. everywhere. And you get, you get folks like uh, Thomas Friedman, who you mentioned in the book, who yeah. uh, bemoan the, the, the unpleasant uh, partisanship and messy gridlock of democracy in, in our constitutional republic. We could just yeah, have yeah. – just cut through that, that annoying – those annoying constraints. We could fix stuff like they do. Um, yeah, what's wrong with yeah. that argument? Yeah. Well, this is um, – you know, this is kind of an awkward moment to be <laughs> making a strong case for a free society when our uh, – you know, our, our Congress seems, and president and everyone seems so dysfunctional. But I think we're, um, we're putting too much attention in the wrong place on what, what constitutes a free society. It's not just about the majority vote elections that create elected officials who pass and enforce laws. That's not the only thing going on in a free society. What's, I think the, the main thing going on and the main, th- well, actually, the, what's important is both what is going on and what's not going on. So, um, you know, what what is going on is that we have this sort of uh, free society in which any any problem at the local level will generate a lot of protests. Like when we talked about Chris Christie and the, the bridge as an example, um, and a lot of pressure to fix that problem in the political system. And our political system is very decentralized and allows that kind of freedom of speech and freedom of protest to, to fix problems in a decentralized way. And, uh, and you know, that's how a lot of our infrastructure actually winds up working so that, you know, our infrastructure is a lot better than that in most authoritarian societies in the world that don't have this kind of pressure to, to fix the infrastructure, even though our infrastructure is... is as far from from perfect, it's still a lot better than that. And and you know the average of all the authoritarian societies of the world. And of course, that's what that's the right comparison that we should be doing is compare all free societies to all authoritarian societies. And that would be how you decide the argument, not sort of pick out one favorite anecdote in China of how the Chinese autocrats might have gotten one good project through. And then the other important thing is what's you know what's not happening. In a free society, you're not putting people in jail. You're not shooting people down in the streets. Um, that's whereas that is what is happening in China, and so that is both a terrible moral wrong in itself that you're putting, um, you know, like the famous artist Ai Weiwei is, is being terribly hounded and persecuted, or the uh, the blind um, lawyer who is advocating for uh, you know protecting women from being forced to have uh, third-term abortions, um, who is eventually exiled and driven out of China, Cheng Wancheng. Uh, you know, silencing and tormenting people like that is what is happening in China. And that's both morally wrong in itself, and it's also preventing this sort of self-correcting, decentralized problem-solving that happens in a free society. And that's, you know, that's the secret of why we in, in the U.S. are still today at, you know, many, many times the per capita income of China as a whole, which is really what we should be focusing on in the big picture, not just China's recent rapid growth rate or one or two kind of infrastructure projects in China. And for China to continue to progress and reach the 
kind of same level of development that we are, I really think the evidence suggests they will have to uh, politically liberalize and allow political rights to their citizens. Well, let me speak in defense of cherry-picking um, my tongue somewhat in my cheek, but uh, it's an interesting claim I sometimes hear. So uh, if we think about education, the United States has a weird mix of top-down uh, elementary and high schools side by side with with private schools. Same thing going on at the university level. In a lot of countries, uh, it's all top down, all the way down. And a lot of times when I speak in defense of decentralized education or getting the government out of education, people will respond and say, but what about Finland? Finland, you know, they have a great public school system. And I think the implication there, it's actually an international test. The last round, they didn't do so well. They got passed by a bunch of Asian countries. But let's just take this example as a is sort of emblematic of a, of a general type of argument. I think the argument is, well, sure, top-down doesn't work very well lots of times. But look at Finland. Let's just take what they did, which did work. Okay, sometimes it doesn't work. But let's cherry-pick their good results, and, and we'll just use their system because we see that it works. What's wrong with that argument? Right. Well, <laughs> you know, the um – so first I of all, I did a pretty good job there, actually. Yeah, yeah, you did. Thank that you. was a great job. <laughs> yes. So you know, this is not how social science should be done, or not how any kind of uh, uh, empirical research should be done. Is you know, you don't just cherry pick one example of success that fits your case, and that clinches the argument. You know, we look at um, all the examples of countries that are following the. Uh, the system that you are said to be in favor of, you compare them to the, all those that have the opposite system, and that's the right comparison to do a kind of systematic study of whether that system works or not. So, you know, in, uh, in the case of kind of the idea of the benevolent autocrat that China has been so influential in, uh, in kind of reinforcing that, uh, oh, China is so wonderful, they're such a benevolent autocracy. Well, you want, you, that's really cherry-picking because you want to look at all the autocratic societies that have an equally large number of really big disasters. You know, we have like the Central African Republic that was overseen by a series of autocrats that has now completely collapsed and dissolved into chaotic ethnic violence and civil war. And it's been an economic disaster going backwards to a really extreme level of poverty. So, you know, the when we talk about autocrats, we're uh, we're talking way too much about China and way too little about the Central African Republic, and that's a that's a bias that clearly shows uh, a kind of confirmation bias that we really want to believe in benevolent autocrats. We really want to believe that the autocrat on the scene is just going to kind of take the advice that the tyranny of experts gives them, takes our advice on how to develop their own societies, and so that will so easily solve the problem of a development if we, the experts, can just come up with the right expert solutions. But I think it's more than that. I think the – it seems to me that the – it's tr- I, you know, obviously your point that you need to look across all examples when you're trying to evaluate the general argument is true. But I'm trying to make a subtler argument, which is let's – Let's admit the fact that that autocracies don't work very well. Let's admit the fact that top-down educational systems often fail. But let's just use the good ones. We've got we've got evidence that Finland's works. So let's just take the features of that one. Of course, most yeah. of them are awful. Yeah. But you know, yeah. trial and error is. We, we, let's take advantage of the fact there've been a lot of experiments with bad top-down, and we'll take the good yeah. ones and adapt them to our system. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, the, it's a delusion to think that the, uh, that we understand well enough what makes the uh, more successful top-down examples work that they can be applied to, to, you know, around the world. And it's a very similar delusion that happens with, uh, with China. I mean, which the World Bank, uh, President Dr. Jim Kim himself kind of fell for. He, he, uh, on his visit to China, he said, oh, this is so wonderful. You know, we should spread the model of China's development success around the world. So, of course, what we're leaving out here is we really don't understand all that well what's making the so-called more successful autocratic examples different from the failed autocratic examples. We understand much better the big picture, which is simply that uh, free societies have a much better outcome than autocratic societies do. That's really the big dominant thing that should be driving most of our opinion on the subject. What's going on as far as within autocracies that some of them seem to be doing better than others? You know, it, uh, I think there's a, a good argument that it may have very little to do with the personality or the individual autocrats themselves, which is the usual argument that you just have good and bad autocrats. There's several reasons to think that. One is that just that poor countries in general have uh, really have re- are really prone to boom and bust. Uh, economies that are much more volatile than rich countries. That's a very well-known uh, stylized fact that poor countries are more volatile. And that means that you get sort of the worst growth rates in poor countries and you get the best growth rates in poor countries. Some of them will have really great booms in which they're taking advantage of things like technological catching up. And others will have real disasters in which commodity prices are declining and kind of um, sending into receivership the main export industry of the country. And so poor countries in general are just very volatile. And the poverty uh, is the thing that's driving the volatility, uh, uh, explaining the so-called success and failure, the high variance of success and failure. And, of course, poverty is also associated with autocracy because that's why they were poor in the first place, is because they had autocrats on the scene. And so autocrats will be on the scene while there are very highly variable growth outcomes. And but it's it's simply spurious to attribute the the high growth outcomes to the uh, so-called good autocrats who happen to be on the scene, and to put all the blame on the so-called bad autocrats who happen to be on the scene when they're when you get a poor country that's on the negative end of that variance, getting a, a big bust instead of a big boom. And I've actually confirmed this more systematically with. Uh, with uh, a colleague at NYU, we've done a paper in which we tried to time, use the timing of the booms and busts to see whether they match the timing of leadership changes to see whether we can uh, kind of prove or disprove the idea of benevolent and malevolent, good and bad autocrats. And we, we find very little evidence that, that it's the individual leaders that explain success and failure. It just seems to be that the changes do not line up in timing. The booms and busts do not line up in the timing with the changes in leadership. So it seems to be just that some autocrats just happen to be in power while while there's a boom going on for other reasons, and then we're spuriously giving them credit when they don't deserve it. So one way, one way to look at that summary is to – the way I would phrase it is the world's a complicated place. Uh, cause and effect are elusive – and that really pushes you, as you've done in this book, methodologically toward a very big picture 
yeah. again, sort of the the opposite of the Millennium Development Goals, the going at some tiny uh, micro piece of the economy, saying, oh, I can just fix that because a lot of times there's luck, there are other factors, you don't know whether the levers you're pushing and pulling are the turning and adjusting are the ones that are actually making a difference. And it pushes yeah. you toward a, a much uh, broader approach that is unfortunately prone to uh, the counter. The, the other problem we have is that it's true you can't run effective regressions, I think, on minute, tiny parts of economic growth and failure. But when you go to the, the level you're, you want to go to and generalize about autocracy and freedom, uh, the other side will say, well, you've cherry-picked these examples, you've left out a lot of the history, and you've said that, oh, freedom works better than autocracy. We don't really know that. There's too much going on. And I'm more comfortable, says the alternative view, with looking at these things I can actually measure and, and statistically. Yeah, well, I mean, first of all, let's not forget the role of um, of having a, a theory about the way the world works and then kind of we're kind of like having alternative theories that we're testing against each other. And then deciding sort of which which theory does the weight of the evidence suggest. That's really how uh, social science should, or science in general works. You don't. Um, there's no such thing as kind of theory-free empirics that just you know where there's some the data are just are able to speak and and tell you what the truth is without having some kind of uh, kind of clarity about what you're trying to test by having two alternative theories that give two different predictions. So, you know, we, if we have kind of two big picture theories of autocracy versus freedom, we have very good theories that we build up over decades and centuries in economics of why free societies work. And I'm not saying that's enough to, uh, to accept them, but it's enough to take them seriously and take them to, to, to see which the relative weight of the evidence is going to support. So, you know, we understand, you know, the problem of incentives and the problem of knowledge is solved much more easily by a free society that when you have uh, kind of decentralized entrepreneurs that have both local knowledge and, and strong motivation, that they'll be much more motivated to solve problems. We have kind of uh, the political economy version of that, that uh, both local and federal government officials will have... Uh, get motivated to get the right knowledge and and be politically motivated to do good things when they get sort of political rewards for problem solving as opposed to autocrats who don't get political rewards for solving the problems of the majority of the population. So that's that's the sort of theory of freedom. And then you test that against, you know, a large body of historical and modern evidence. And the reality is we do science and both science and and the reality of our daily lives suggest we do have to make choices. You know, it's not, we don't just say, oh, the evidence is rigorous and not rigorous enough. We're going to believe in nothing. You know, people are making choices between autocracy and freedom as as their default view of how they think development happens. And they're often doing so in a very sloppy way based on a few anecdotes. I think if you kind of systematically process most of the long-run evidence and the modern experience, the evidence on the side of freedom is, is far much, much stronger than the evidence on the side of autocracy. You know, you just don't have an overwhelming number of 
autocracies that have been successful development examples in the long run of having attained a high level of development. You don't have a long, a lot of examples of kind of ever escalating autocracy going together with ever escalating higher development and education and health and so on. You have the opposite. You have, uh, you know, a lot of free societies that have attained a high level of development and, and, you know, their history was of an escalating degree of individual rights for the majority of the population and ever expanding larger circles of the population going together with better health, education, and development. So as a social scientist, I certainly agree with you, right? And right. as an activist, I, I also agree with you, but you have to be um, – it seems to me we have to be humble in the following way, and I know you are, so I want to give you a chance to say so. Uh, the implication of what you just said is that, well, so we should be advocating for – more economic freedom uh, and and better economic policies in the part of, of the poor nations of the world, less autocracy. And yet when we look at the so-called Washington Consensus and various types of advice that uh, international organizations have given poor countries, their suggestions to move toward more market-based solutions haven't always panned out successfully. So uh, one, how do you reconcile that with your story? And two, uh, what's to be done then? Yeah, well, I think that's a big mis misconception that the, if you do decide that freedom is the right approach, either, you know, you, usually people are only deciding that economic freedom is the best approach and they're, uh, they're, have a shameful neglect and, and disinterest in political freedom. But let's leave that aside for the moment. If you do decide that economic freedom is the best approach, you know, what then does that imply that you do? Uh, and I think, this is where political freedom does does really become very relevant. The, the great thing about both kinds of freedom is that they are self-correcting uh, self-correcting systems that punish those who fail to solve problems and reward those who do solve problems. Problems with sort of IMF and World Bank experts kind of parachuting in saying, here's what I think you should do to become a free market society that I think will, will, will benefit you is the experts themselves are not accountable and they themselves do not have either the, uh, opportunity or the motivation to acquire enough local, local context specific knowledge to make their solutions work. So, you know, the, the fundamental problem in successful problem solving is always coming down to the motivation that is incentives and knowledge. And the problem with the tyranny of experts is that the experts have neither the, the sufficient motivation through being held accountable for their successes and failures, nor do they have enough local knowledge. And that applies just as much to those experts that are recommending freedom as it does those who are recommending autocracy. So that's a sort of paradox that arises here is that you, you know, when you, when you come to acknowledge sort of the power of freedom to be the problem solving the successful problem-solving system that will work to achieve development, that sharply reduces the role of kind of the overall guiding planning expert with a lot of power. Experts within a free society have to be embedded within the, the system of accountability in either markets or or politics, you know, that they will be held accountable if they fail. They will be rewarded if they succeed, which is not what's happening today in the world of development experts. So I'm sympathetic to that view. Uh, it does allow the other side 
uh, to say that um, that they have not only good intentions, but they're trying. Uh, a lot of people respond to Jeffrey Sachs and Gates by saying, okay, so they may not work so well, but at least they're trying. Whereas you and I, we're not even trying. We're just saying, oh, we don't know what could be done. We don't have the local knowledge. And so our best policy is to stand back. How do you defend yourself against that um, moral criticism? Well, I think, um, first of all, the, the trying the trying that's going on by Sachs and Gates is part of the problem and not part of the solution because they're, they're because of the ideas that they're creating about how development happens. You know, they're creating an idea in which the way that development happens is having these that are Western experts, foreign experts at the center, at the heart of the development solution, the profoundly misguided view of how development happens. And I think ideas are just as powerful or more powerful than these kind of direct technical solutions in, in helping development happen that um, economists and others uh, around the world who sort of understand and are convinced of the ideals of freedom can play a really powerful role uh, in education and advocacy and spreading those ideals and supporting those around the world who are fighting for those ideals, for the ideals of freedom. The, uh, you know, I, supporting Ai Weiwei, the dissident artist in China and his, uh, campaign for rights and democracy instead of, uh, supporting his oppressor, uh, supporting the jailed dissident blogger Iskander Nega in Ethiopia who's been sentenced to 18 years in jail for nothing more than writing peaceful blogs advocating democracy. Supporting him instead of supporting his oppressor which is what Bill Gates and Jeff Sachs are doing by working hand-in-hand hand with the authoritarian Ethiopian government and praising them for their successes. You know, I think these ideas and these ideals are are very powerful, and people are willing to give their lives for these ideals. These, this is how powerful they are. So, so advocating these ideals is itself a huge positive contribution to development, and certainly the much more powerful and the opposite of what... Um, Bill Gates and Jeff Sachs are doing and putting themselves at the center, kind of arrogantly and condescendingly putting themselves at the center of this, the development problem, of the solution of the development problem of the rest of the world. It's like we, you know, we really need like a Copernican revolution in development. It's the, the Gates-Sachs view puts the, the expert, the Western experts at the center the Western aid efforts at the center of development, and that's just a delusion. Those efforts are are paltry, they're ineffective, and they're not how development happens. And they're very condescending towards poor people and thinking that the main help, the main hope of poor people is these Western experts. You know, the, the Copernican revolution would revolve around not us, not we, but the, the them that is implied by the we, and we would not even call the them the to them, it's them deserve to be we just as much as we do. And when we put we, you know, when we, when we put all of us around the world at the center of development, that we mainly achieve development by advocating for our own political and economic rights with the support of others, friendly supporters around the rest of the world, then that's the correct view to, to about how development will actually happen. And that's much more likely to make development happen if we have that view spread and and take take flight and flourish around the world, and we support the brave people fighting for that view around the world. 
Well, Jeff Saxworth, I think he'd say as he did on this program, he's a big friend of markets. He thinks markets are crucial to development. All he's doing is helping create some infrastructure and other uh, things that are going to unleash the bottom-up solutions that are going to grow. Those are things like finding malaria, building better roads, scientific knowledge, uh, infrastructure such as schools, etc. Um, he thinks of himself as a market kind of guy. No, that's fine. Um, you know, there's, there's lots of market kind of guys in development. I'm not disputing that. Uh, the point is that he's miss, what he's missing is that the, the, all these technical solutions that he's talking about, you know, that why are they going to be done? Why are they going to last? Um, they're not going to be done and they're not going to last in an environment that depends on the unaccountable, unmotivated, unknowledgeable Western experts. They're going to be done and they're going to last when they're done by locally homegrown, politically accountable, economically accountable, uh, you know, entrepreneurs and officials who have all the incentives and the knowledge to make them last. And that's what a free society does. And so what Jeff Sachs and Bill Gates and many others like Tony Blair and Bill Clinton and just Jim Kim at the World Bank and all the official aid agencies, what they're unintentionally doing is peddling just this fundamentally misguided view of how development happens by uh, putting themselves at the center of development. They censor themselves not to even talk about the issue of, of freedom for poor people. And they so thereby they miss the main solution to how development does happen, which is free people asserting their own political and economic rights, which is how the political those all those technical and infrastructure solutions do stick and do get done in the long run. And we have that track record of free societies to show that, and we have the modern examples to show that, and that's where the weight of the evidence lies. And I think that's also you know, there's also a moral case that this, this, these freedoms are good in and of themselves to begin with. So let me close with a challenging question. Do you think the world would be a better place if tomorrow um, the World Bank and the IMF closed their doors and just said, you know, we're, we're, we're on the wrong side here for all our good intentions? And I, I have many friends who work there. I know you do too. They're, they're great people. They mean well. Um, if we close their doors, would... Uh, would the world be a better place? You know, I would not. That's not where I would go first. I would where I'd go first is I'd say, look, you guys, you know, you've you really got the the Copernican revolution the wrong way around. You're you're putting yourself at the center of the problem. You're um, refusing to talk. You're censoring yourself to not be able to talk about the freedom of poor people because you conceive that you can only do your 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 job by uh, praising the autocratic governments that you work with and giving them the credit for development. By doing all that, you're creating a fundamentally misguided and disheartening uh, view for poor people of how development happens. That it can only happen at their expense when they are oppressed by their own rulers. And I think you can, you guys can switch sides. <laughs> you can switch. You can switch away from backing the authoritarian side to backing the free side. And uh, I think you guys in uh, the World Bank and other aid agencies are going to have to make that switch to survive. So I would invite you to make that switch rather than, rather than calling for your abolition. 
My guest today has been William Easterly. His book is The Tyranny of Experts. Bill, thanks for being part of EconTalk. My pleasure. Thanks, Russ. This is EconTalk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more EconTalk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for EconTalk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.